and Bradshaw, and he, oh. he, he, he wanted to stop. He, he wanted to stop, and he gets into the end zone. That's exactly what New England was doing. They were letting him go into the end zone, and Bradshaw had such a big hole, and he's trying to fall down at the one-yard line. kind of the end of an era don yeah yes it is we are coming to you for the last time from what we will call studio a that's right the sportscasters have been on a road trip of sorts since last january kind of recording in the home of a friend who we should thank for all of his hospitality over the last year or so and finally we are moving this bitch home that's right Next week, we will be coming to you from North Tanawanda, New York, from my home. And for a lot of reasons, we made the change. Nothing really that interesting. One, my co-host Don is having a baby, and mm. it's going to be easier for him to be closer to home. And, you know, home is where the heart is. That's right. So that's where we're going. It is the Sportscaster Season 2, Episode number 6. It is February 7th, 2012. We got three W's for you today. Wertheim, Wyshynski, and Wolken are on the podcast. John Wertheim has been all over the joint recently, including the Australian Open and the Super Bowl. He's going to report on those two road trips. Uh, Puck Daddy's going to join us again to talk a little bit about hockey. The one nice thing about the Super Bowl ending, well, it depends how you're looking at it. Either one <laughs> good thing or bad thing is that at the podcast, we get to spend some time talking about other sports, and hockey is probably the, at the top of that list for us anyway. Right. Sports that we're passionate about and love to talk about. So Greg Wyshynski is going to get that topic going for us. And Dan Walken from The Daily. The Daily, as some of you know, some of you don't, is a newspaper that was created for the iPad and has recently expanded to the Android and just celebrated its one-year anniversary. Dan Wolken is the national sports columnist for The Daily. He's been on here before. Right. He's going to update us on what it's like being a sports writer for a unique platform like The Daily. And he's also going to start the college basketball discussion with us. He's a big college basketball guy. And the other two times that he's been on, he's actually talked college sports scandal with us. I think the first time he was on was to kind of talk about the Ohio State scandal. And he's going to talk to us, instead of scandal this time, about college basketball and the season. And obviously we'll talk about the daily. A few things before we get going with the show today. just want to remind you we're on Facebook. And you can find us easily there, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can find us at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. Our Tumblr is thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And the cool thing about Tumblr that we've been doing is kind of giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast each week. We'll keep doing that. And our website, where you can find all this information, is sportscasters.com. A uh, couple of reminders. Episode number two, or episode season two, episode four, Featured Michael Farber, S.L. Price, and Duff McKagan. That was two weeks ago. You can still find that on our website. And episode number five from last week, if you want to look back at the Super Bowl show, 
That episode also aired on ProPlayerInsiders.com. Talk about that more in a second. But we had Chris Burke live from Indianapolis, Kerry J. Byrne on the road to Indianapolis, and Christopher Price, who was also live from Indianapolis. Uh, one thing to note, I've been doing a little bit more writing recently for ProPlayerInsiders.com. I wrote a piece about prop bets that's on the site's front page right now. I also wrote a page called Stepping Out of the Shadows about Eli Manning and also did a reaction piece after the game, kind of about some of the bizarre things that happened in the Super Bowl. But we have a lot to do today. As I said, John Wertheim is on the show. Greg Wyshynski on the show. Dan Wilkins on the show. We're going to update the book club. The Sportscasters 10 is going to kind of close off the era here in Buffalo proper with a countdown of the top 10 guests in Studio A. And we're going to start all of that off with our favorite segment, Three Things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. The Giants won the Super Bowl this weekend. Uh, if anyone didn't see it for whatever reason, twenty-one to seventeen. Uh, and I gotta say, I, I thought it was solid, but maybe a little bit dull. Uh, there was had its moments of there dullness. was maybe one great play the whole game, and that was the Manningham catch. And the rest of it was really solid quarterback play and a lot of bend but don't break defense. There wasn't a ton of like back and forth scoring or anything like that. It wasn't a ton of uh, there was turnovers. There was 60-yard touchdowns like I had predicted. Nothing close. Right. No, I mean, it was all kind of move the ball, move the ball, move the ball, kick a field goal. So, great finish. Uh, it doesn't rate in the top probably 10 Super Bowls for me for what a tight finish it was, though. Yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't the most exciting of games. It did get great there at the at the end, I think one thing going into a Super Bowl, more than anything, if you can get a great finish, right? That's that's kind of what you're looking for going into the day. I mean, sure, we love a back and forth 38-35 game with right, all right. kinds of excitement in place, but considering what we've had in the past, like the fifty-five to tens and that whole yeah, kind of was... '80s era, to step up from that, I think we've just been spoiled recently with the quality of games that we've had in the last. 10 years or so right other than with the exception of a game here or a game there that that one it just fell a little bit short yeah if i had to grade it i'd give it about a b i suppose all right my first thing is super bowl related after the game one person that was not very happy at all was giselle i don't know if you no, heard her comments hear. yeah. don but uh mrs brady had this to say my husband cannot bleeping throw the ball and catch the ball at the same time i can't believe they dropped the ball so many times she's right i mean right if uh welker catches the ball on that second to last or last drive they win they win right uh and at the end aaron hernandez dropped one to hit him right in stride in the hands but i mean i don't know it's a team game right you know it's interesting because uh the sporting news had an article about this um, David Whiteley, an AOL fan house columnist, posted an article, and I'm reading here, and there's a quote from one of the wives who says that Giselle has very few friends among the wives. Of course, many are jealous of her looks and all that, but she doesn't make it easy to like her. 
<laughs> so, you know, a lot has been made of Giselle kind of being the Yoko Ono of the Patriots dynasty. They haven't won a Super Bowl since Giselle has been part of Brady's life. Uh, you know, he's a very humble and professional guy, Tom Brady. I'm not going to say that that has changed in the least. He does a great job of balancing out what a horrible job his coach does after these games. <laughs> yeah. When he comes out and stands at the podium and does a great, respectful job of talking about the game. And you'll never hear Tom say that Wes Welker. I think what he said was that we just couldn't connect on that one. You know, right, and the pass right. was a little wide. You know, as Welker said, it's a catch he makes a million times. So, But it's interesting to see, you know, if Patriots Nation will turn on Giselle here a bit or how they're going to react long term. But uh, she made $45 million last year. Wow. Yep. Her and her husband have a $20 million house in L.A. She's considered the greatest supermodel in the world right now, so... She's going to be okay. Yeah, I think she'll be fine. A Giants fan, this is kind of funny, spotted her waiting uh, for an elevator and started yelling, Eli owns your husband. <laughs> <laughs> my my second thing this week is uh, what was Ahmad Bradshaw doing on that play where he scored the touchdown? We played the highlight off the start. He wasn't sure. Yeah, and that makes me point to Coughlin a little bit. Somebody should have told him don't score there. And Coughlin admitted that. I don't know if you see. No, I didn't see that. He was on the NFL Network set with Deion Sanders and Michael Irvin shortly after the game, and he said that he had explained to the Giants what the plan was, but he didn't specifically mention what to do if the sea just opened like that. Right, right. And I guess the word from those who have heard on the field is that Eli was telling him to stop, so he tried. And then fell in. Which kind of made him end up somewhat sideways, and then his momentum just pushed him in. That said... If I were the Patriots, uh, and I was watching with my father and brother and stepmother, I was yelling that they should be letting these guys score uh, plays before that. Right. When they got down to the the play that got them a first down before the touchdown, they had the ball like the 18-yard line or so. They should have allowed them to score on the catch that brought it right there because even then it's pretty much a gimme field goal. Uh John Wertheim actually has some really good numbers on this, which I don't want to give away yet. We'll save them for the Wertheim interview. But he's got great numbers on what the probabilities were for the Giants to win had they not been let to score and how it changed when the Patriots let them score. So a little bit of a teaser there. We'll hear more about that in the John Wertheim interview right after this. And I know that, again, that goes back to some of the stuff about loss aversion in that because if you are the the coach that lets someone score from, like, the 18 or the 15 yard line. I mean, that's, that's like a 35 or a 30. Yeah. About a 35 yard field goal. It's not quite the gimme that an extra point is. And there's always things that could happen, but yeah, if I were a mod Bradshaw, or if I were the, I would have taken the ball down. And if you want to run it in on the last play, just so there's not some fluke miss snap, like, uh, the Cowboys, Tony Romo. Romo, right? And there was a really fluke snap in a Giants and 49ers playoff game years right, back. Right, right. Yeah, if you wanted to take it in like on third down and maybe you run that play, then Well, every then second you take off the clock, the less of a chance Brady has. Right. So To score the minute left, though, that, that was a huge, huge mistake. It sure was. All right, my number two thing today, football-related but not necessarily Super Bowl-related, 
Baltimore Ravens running back Ricky Williams has decided to retire from the NFL after 11 seasons. Uh, he announced that today. He said, the NFL has been an amazing page in this chapter of my life. I pray that all successive adventures offer me the same potential for growth, success, and most importantly, fun. I want to thank all my fans, teammates, coaches, and supporters for the strength they've given me to overcome so much. Goodbye, Rick. Of course, the 1999 Heisman Trophy winner was drafted by the Saints later that year. Um, he's one of 26 running backs to rush for more than 10,000 yards in his career. Uh, he had five 1,000-yard seasons. In 2002, he won a rushing title with 1,853 yards for the Dolphins. Following year, he had 1,372. And then he suspiciously retired for the first time. <laughs> only to come back because of debts and things of that nature. Didn't want to have to pay back his Didn't signing bonus. Didn't want to bonus. pay back his signing bonus. Uh, and then he finished his career with a nice little stint with the Ravens, kind of backing up Ray Rice. He kind of fit yeah. in well there. Um, what do you think Rick's legacy is? Uh, Retiring early, right? That's still yeah, kind of I his legacy. The pot thing, right? This kind of aloof he's guy who probably. Wore his a, I mean, is he a Hall of Famer? He's no, born, he's close though. He can't be too far off. I mean, yeah, he, he had some great, great seasons. Uh, I guess not enough of them. And with yeah. when you throw in the craziness, yeah. I mean, like I said, he's one of twenty-six running backs with ten thousand yards rushing. Yeah, so, so I guess that's not quite there. Yeah. My last point actually touches on Hall of Fame running backs, and that's Curtis Martin. Uh, he has the fourth most rushing yards of all time. But I think if guys like Andre Reid couldn't get in before, when guys like Curtis Martin get in, I don't know. I'm going to backpedal a little bit on this point because I, I did pull up his stats. To me, Curtis Martin, as a guy that watched him a lot as a Bills fan, he's always been in Buffalo's division, either with uh, the Patriots or the Jets. I always felt like he was a bit of a compiler. I never felt like he was like the cream of the crop in the league. He was never the best. I think in 2004, he may have he had almost 1,700 yards rushing, so I was shocked to see that. He's had one year of 1,500 and two years of 1,400. Then beyond that, 13, 12, 11, been, oh, like decent years. He's uh, a work pal guy, though. Yeah, you know what I mean? He's a guy that had a nice career. He came to work every week. You could count on him. He was really steady. He's a Bill Parcells guy, you know, respected by the... Not a breakaway guy, so like you no. said, he kind of had to compile his yards. Uh, what did he average a carry, about 4, four or 5? 4.0, right 4. on the money. 0, so okay. it's not exactly... I mean, if you went by just yards per it's carry... It's not world class. That's not Hall of Fame worthy. 83 yards a game is, is solid. Uh. The, impre- the most impressive thing I saw here about him, though, is it looks like, if I'm reading these numbers right, he only missed four games his entire career until his last year where he missed four more. Wow. So in yeah, he's like 11-year career. He brought it every week. You yeah. know, he was durable. He was dependable. He rushed for 100 yards probably a ton of times. You know, he was, he was a really reliable guy. Yeah, I came in to this point kind of thinking to hate on him. But that's more, I think, like I said, because I would watch him, and he was never like the type of guy that you're like, oh, my God, the Bills are playing Curtis Martin this week. Let's let's game plan around Curtis Martin. The other team probably never game planned against Curtis Martin. Maybe but, that was a mistake to some extent. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but he's he said surprisingly decent numbers. Uh, you know, my gripe career. with the Hall of Fame announcement this week was that, for one, Bill Parcells didn't get in. How could they justify Marv Levy being in and Bill Parcells not? 
I, I think Parcells had about two Super Bowls. Parcells has won two Super Bowls. Levy's lost four. four Parcells right. also lost the Super Bowl with the uh, Patriots. He brought all kinds of teams from nothing to something. Uh, he played in. He coached the Jets to an AFC Championship game, which they lost to Denver and Elway. I don't know. I, I just think it's hard to justify that, and also just what a poor job they're doing with the receivers. How Chris Carter and Andre Reid and Tim Brown, Tim Brown, one of them aren't in, if not both, if not all three, I just don't get. And I hate the fact that they hide behind some of the rules of the hall, like not having to disclose who they vote for right. and stuff like that aggravates me. And the thought that these guys are canceling each other out is just stupid. You should evaluate each player on its own, on their own merit. And I guess I'm guilty of not doing that in the sense that I just made a comparison you know, and I, and I get that, but I also made a comparison of someone who wasn't in with someone who was in. Right. I have no problem with you comparing Chris Ca- Chris Carter to John Stallworth because Chris Carter's going to have much better numbers than John Stallworth did. Right, right. You know, but I just I think that the Hall of Fame is is make, and it looks like those guys just aren't going to get in because if you look at the next three eligible classes, there's just a ton of talent, and I just can't see it. No, and then Moss is going to be eligible mm-hmm. eventually, and Terrell Owens, and they're not better than either of those guys. The one interesting uh, thing I heard about, or Jerry Sullivan wrote about, was he's a local Buffalo News guy. He wrote that how much one play changes your legacy. If the Scott Norwood field goal is good, maybe Parcells isn't even like – Right, then he only has one Super Bowl. He only has one Super Bowl. He's got two losses. He's not that close. And on the flip side – Andre Reid's probably a Hall of Famer. Because now he has Because now ring. he has one ring. And really, it's all about one play. Again, we've talked about it enough. It wasn't a gimme field One goal play or anything, that neither of those was, guys controlled, by the way. Right. You know? One play uh, changes the legacies of all these guys. That's why I love the brilliance of our buddy Dave Damashek's What If L segments. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I don't know. I don't think so. But he does for the NFL.com. He does these really great animated pieces called the What If L. Hmm. where he takes a certain moment in NFL history and kind of says, what if this had happened? We'll talk to Dave about those next time he's on the show. All right, my last thing today is about some encouraging news in terms of a potential playoff in college football. The Big Ten, who was really the driving force in squashing the notion of a 14 playoff to crown a national championship seven years ago, has decided to take another look. Uh, This quote today, all of the Big Ten athletic directors are comfortable exploring the possibility of a four-team playoff. That's from Michigan State Athletic Director Mark Hollis. Four is better than two. Um, Gene Smith, the athletic director from Ohio State, said that we need to do something different, especially after the recent BCS title game between LSU and Alabama drew lower ratings than other championship games. The fan of the fans have been loud and clear. We also recognize that structurally there's things that we want to try and change with the bowl system, how teams get into bowls. It's time to be curious about everything. All right, so that's great news. I mean, look at as he said, the Ohio State guy especially, four is better than two. In my mind, eight or sixteen is better than four, but you know what? Baby steps. And just the thought that they're willing to sit down and talk about this stuff, it sounds like everyone is getting more and more open to the idea of it. And it kind of really sounds like eventually this is going to happen. Well, if college football is all about dollars and cents, it makes the most sense to have a playoff. I don't understand why they're facing it with such uh, 
why they're facing it so adversely. Uh, I've always said that about hockey, too. If hockey really wants to get ratings up, you don't have people watching it anyway. Scrap the playoff system. Bracket it. You'd be the only the, you'd be one of two sports that brackets it. And basketball, everyone watches college basketball during the tournament because we'll of the, to fill the out betting aspect. Right. Uh, granted, with hockey, you'd only be able to fill out a four, two, one. So what is that? Eleven, a thirteen team bracket because or thirteen pick bracket as opposed to basketball's huge bracket. But still, if you can get people to bet on something, it'll give them a reason to watch it. Absolutely. All right, our lawyer, before we move on, Don, our lawyer, Mr. Wise okay. from Canada, emailed us with his own three things. And since he's our <laughs> lawyer, I'll read them quickly. <laughs> Why? First, what's that? Why did he email us? I don't know. He just it's wanted first to email us three things. I don't, I don't know why. Um, okay. Out of nowhere, basically, he wrote Yeah, me, he's never done it before. From someone trying to survive the two weeks of Super Bowl overload. Here are my three things. This first one is kind of a long thing about Sam Gagne, Gagne, uh, spelled Gagne, uh, who in 2006 and 2007 as an underager, he was the 13th forward at the World Juniors in Sweden. Him and his wife were there. They sat with his parents a couple of games. His sister was in agony watching her brother struggle. Coaches had no confidence in him. However, that would be his only World Junior Championship. Five and a half months later, he got drafted sixth overall. Two months later, he suits up for Canada again in the 2007 Super Series. Junior hockey's nod to the 35th annual, 35th anniversary of the 72 Summit Series. In eight games versus Russia, he dominated all scores, including John Tavares, Claude Giroux, Kyle Turris, uh, Drew Doughty. What happened to Kyle Turris? Lucic Turris is having a career revival in Ottawa right now oh, okay. as the number two center. Um. Then he makes the Oilers out of the gate, plays 79 games with the Oilers that season. He had 49 points as a rookie. Uh, he had uh, eight points. That Just was the, the first night. time in 23 years it's happened. Uh, and he grew up in Oakville. His dad, Dave, is the director of player personnel for the Leafs, or for the Canucks, and he played for the Leafs. So a bunch of stuff on Gagne there. And he has two more shorter ones. Soft tissue, neck injuries versus con concussions. Uh, Brandon Trock of the Seattle Thunderbirds misses a whole season with concussion-like symptoms and recovers only when they start treating it like a soft tissue neck injury. Scored the game-winning goal in the CHL Top Prospects game the same week. And uh, as that controversy ends, the kind of stuff goes crazy with Crosby. Right. Then his last point is about Gomez. Scott Gomez is now officially one year without a goal. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, makes it's seven terrible. million dollars. His cap hit is seven million dollars. Uh, Glenn Sather signed him to that money, then traded him to Montreal for Ryan McDonough. And uh, Sunday's game that was last Sunday is the one year anniversary of Gomez, who hasn't scored. So fans are ready to kill him. So that's from my lawyer Rob. I wanted to get that <laughs> in for him. Three things for Rob. We kind of mentioned that. We're moving, and that was one big announcement today. I have a second big announcement, which I'm going to save for after pick four. So this is what we're looking at. We're going to take a break, have an interview with John Wertheim. We're going to do the Sportscaster 10. We're going to have an interview with Greg Wyshynski. We're going to update the book club. Our last interview is with Dan Welkin. Then we're going to do pick four, and we're going to close it out with a big announcement. So let's take a break. We've got a lot to do. We'll be right back with John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. <laughs> Thank you. 
Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting the New York Times best-selling book, Scorecasting, the Hitting Influences Between How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He has spent the last few weeks in Australia covering the Australian Open and Indianapolis covering the Super Bowl. And he's making his sixth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very great John Wertheim. How are you doing today, Mr. Wertheim? Wow, number six. I didn't realize that. Number but, six. You're catching up the lead. Uh, one well, behind. Well, yeah, I was going to say, what, 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 that puts me in second place. Huh? S- Sorry, I'll, I'll happily take a uh, backseat to the great lead Jenkins. Yeah, the Richard Deitch told us around Christmas time that we are in the can, quote unquote, for John Wertheim and Lee Jenkins. So to which I said, yes, we are. We certainly right, are in the can for those guys. So uh, welcome back. We missed you. It's been a bit. And uh, since we talked last, I first of all saw the got to meet your partner via Real sports. Um, I was sitting down watching real sports, and you know, I'm watching this thing, and I'm like, you know, they're stealing this from scorecasting. They're talking about winner version, and I got my book out, and the next thing I know, there's your buddy on the screen. I'm like, all right, they're gonna give him a little bit of credit there. What'd you think of the real sports uh, piece? Yeah, it was great. I, I was out of the country, so they had to go with my uh, my less telegenic colleague, but uh, he, he held his own. Yeah, he did good. To get no, no, it's it, it, um, I was glad that worked out, and. Uh, you know, I'm uh, you're, you're you're in the can for Lee Jenkins. I'm in the can for Kevin Kelly, who's the uh, mm. the Arkansas coach they profiled. who doesn't believe in punting and kicking, and uh, it was really uh, it was great fun. So no, I thought that was uh, I thought they did a real nice job with that segment. I was happy uh, happy Toby got some face time too. Yeah, yeah, because you know you'd always told us, yeah, he doesn't really like to do that kind of. You know, I'm kind of the mouthpiece for it, and it was was good to see him too, because you know I, you know how much I love the book, but um. So you've been busy. You've been all over. You've been in Australia. You've been in Indianapolis. Let's let's start in Australia. And um, what as you as you came back from Australia, what were the two or three things that were on your mind as kind of like the biggest stories that emerged from tennis's first major? Well, I mean, I think the big one is just sort of this this era we're in, where the top four men are just head and shoulders above the rest of the field, which is really. You know, rare in tennis, certainly rare this day and age. And then this sort of weird rock, scissors, paper game we've got going where Nadal clearly has Federer's number and Djokovic clearly has Nadal's number and Federer kind of has Djokovic's number. It's um, it's just such a strange era. It's, it's great fun. I mean, no matter... We're at a point now in the men's game where almost no matter what happens, it's a great story. I mean, it's if Murray wins, it means one thing, and if Federer means it's something else, it's just... No matter how the the plots twist, it's relevant and significant now. It's just it's just a really fun era. And then the women, you know, who who knows where we are with with women's tennis? Um, but you, you do have a sense that we do have a, a credible number one player in in Azarenka. Um, you know, the the big women's story there was sort of was, was her winning her first major and toppling Wozniacki, the previous number one in this era, and sort of this issue of grunting. But really, it's it's men's tennis driving the bus right now, and that that final we had was tremendous. But there was a lot even before that Sunday night, or I guess Sunday morning, by uh, 
by 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 your calendar, and then Monday morning by mine. But even before that tremendous, you know, almost six hour final, right? There was a lot of great stuff on the men's side. It, it was it was really a fun. It, it's always a great event, but the tennis really sort of kept pace with uh, with the vibe this year. Let me ask you a couple follow ups first. Is Murray? truly at that level to make it a top four or is it a top three and then maybe a little bit of a drop off then Murray and then a huge drop off or do you believe that Murray's at that level and could win a major this year yeah no I do I mean I think he's number four for a reason I mean I think he's he's a lot better than number five and he's a little worse than number three and he's getting closer you know I mean he he had deep in the fifth setting of Djokovic and I don't know I mean if, if you're him do you come out of there saying my gosh I played this well, and I still couldn't close the deal. Or do you say, you know, little by little, I'm getting closer. This is a guy I played in the finals a year ago and embarrassed myself. This year, I get him in the semis and come within a few points of taking him down. But no, I, I think Murray. I mean, he's he's made the semis of of you know five straight majors. So he hasn't won one yet, and that's always going to hang over him until he does it. But I, I think it really is a big four. I mean, I think he's done enough to sort of get. Get in. You know, he's, he's, he's Ringo. I mean, he's, he's not the headliner, but he definitely has done enough to sort of get entree in that, in that VIP room. And, you know, the next thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, this, this issue of legacy, and we love to talk about this kind of thing with sports and legacy, and you had a really smart tweet, I thought, on Sunday, kind of, you know, at, kind of to the point of where we we're always questioning, can, can uh, Federer be considered the number one player of all time, despite the fact that he loses so much to Nadal and then you kind of compared it a little bit to Manning, Eli versus Brady and, and, and that legacy kind of issue there. But I let's stick with the tennis for now. And where do you kind of come out on it? I mean, is Federer, cause it was a Glock like two years ago or three years ago. It was like Federer is the best player of all time, but now there's this doubt that's crept in and, and kind of where do you stand? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, look, it's no doubt it's a mark against him. I mean, the, the number two guy, and he's he's barely winning, you know, thirty percent of the games, and and the record in majors, which are really where the, you know, where the reputations are made, are even worse against Nadal. I mean, no question, this sort of cuts against his legacy. But I, I think the guy has done so much. There's so much else that you could use to support it. This mountain of evidence you could sort of use in favor of him. It outweighs this this one. I mean, the other thing we're seeing, too, is that, you know, Nadal has lost seven in a row to Djokovic. And maybe the moral of the story is, hey, look, even the best players have some guys that they just match up poorly against. So, I, you know, same with, uh, you know, same with, same with Brady and Manning. And I, I do think, you know, and the one hand, it's silly to compare individual sports and team sports, but I also feel like watching those games, there's something really similar when you sort of have this older, accomplished guy who, frankly, is probably better. I mean, I think in objective terms, Brady is a better player than Manning. Um, you know, just, just as Federer sort of plays gamely against Nadal and every once in a while he goes on, wins a set, and he's brilliant. You know, Brady has these moments where you say, aha, that's why people think of him as one of the great ones. But in the end, he just whether it's mental or a bad mashup, it just doesn't get the job done. And, and that's how you feel watching Federer against Nadal, and that's how, you know, you felt the last two Super Bowls, uh, Brady Manning. I mean, I, I think Federer is still the best ever. I think it's definitely, you know, I mean, it's the number one argument against him, put it that way, that he has such a dismal record against the guy who's supposed to be his rival. But on the other hand, he's, he's done so much else to support it that I, I don't think it disqualifies him that, you know, he, he's only whatever it is, 8-16 against the doll. You know, the answer before 
Federer with Sampras. Is there is there a comparison there? Was there anyone that Sampras struggled with? No, I mean, it, it's funny, too, because it almost cut against him. That, that Sampras had a better, whether it was Agassi or whether, uh, you know, there, there were a couple of sort of random guys that could give him trouble, and obviously Sampras wasn't great on clay. But, no, Sampras didn't have anyone who was sort of in his kitchen, who he just hated to play, um, you, you know, who did to him what Djokovic does to the dollar when the dollar does to Federer. There wasn't anything like that. But, you know, the way it was spun wasn't, oh, wow, Pete Sampras is so great. He beats everyone. It was, oh, this is such a weak era. He has no one to challenge him. He has no worthy rival. So you you almost, you know, you, you almost lose either way. That if Federer were crushing Nadal, people would be saying, well, Roger Federer might be the best ever, but look, he didn't have to beat anyone good. So it, it almost is sort of, uh, you know, this double-edged sword for these, for these great players. Right. So in the next few weeks here, we're going to, you know, the Australians going to fade and fade into our rear view and we're going to get ready for the French Open. What story or stories are you looking to develop as we move from Australia to French and then get ready for the summer in Wimbledon and the U.S. Open? You, you mean in, in tennis? Yeah, in tennis. What are you going to be following here as we, as we move from the first major to the second? What, what, what could change or develop, or is it just going to be pretty much status quo and the big four guys get ready for a ne- another major? No, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm interested to see if, if Nadal and Djokovic have played this amazing match, but it's, you know, six hours of pounding on concrete, and then you hope both of them are healthy. Remember we had that, that Isner-Mahout match, you know, the 70-68 Wimbledon match in 2010 that everybody has so, so much fun over, but the truth is, you know, it wrecked those guys for months and months and months, and I, I hope we don't have that with with Nadal and Djokovic after that final in Melbourne. I mean, I think it is... It sounds crazy to say to Djokovic, hey, look, I know you won three majors and 90% of your matches in uh, 2011. Come back again and see how good you are. But, you know, the guy sure started out strong, and every time someone wins the Australian Open, the inevitable question is, can he win the Grand Slam, you know, i.e. all four majors? And in the case of Djokovic, you know, sure, he he theoretically could. So, you know, I I think we're going to see how these players do on hard courts. I think we're going to see what Federer's got in him having played so well for many, many months. And then, he really, you know, he really looked after the first week. He looked like he had as bad as anyone winning the tournament and then just ran into Nadal and once again didn't quite have enough. And then on the women's side, it's obviously a question of, you know, Ken Azarenka, who, you know, has always been a top player. She's from Belarus, but really is from Arizona, speaks perfect English. I mean, I, I think she could be a real star. But we said that in the past in women's tennis and watch these players win once and then retreat. So right. is she, you know, is, is she the new queen or is this another Anna Ivanovich type thing where she wins once and then retreats? So, um, yeah, I mean, the tennis, for, for all the issues it has, it's obviously sort of struggles to be relevant, especially in the U.S., but it never lacks for storylines. I'll, I'll give it that. All right, last thing uh, about tennis, and we'll just do a couple minutes on Super Bowl, and we'll get you out of here. But I want to ask you: Is six hours too long? Is there anything? Like- yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is. It, it yeah. really is. And um, I, I think that everybody sort of the, the headline is, "Oh, you know, longest Grand Slam final ever, longest Australian Open." But I, I think that, especially this day and age, they got to figure something out, and whether that's enforcing the time so these guys don't bounce the ball a hundred times, or whether that's you know, even I think moving to best of three sets, which sounds like sacrilege, but you know these guys are ravaging their bodies again. This is all being played on concrete, and 
I you know I, I don't like tennis as much as anyone, but I'm I'm not sure six hours is what I need, and um, it, it just seems a little kind of tone deaf to the times. It's not great on TV. I mean, it ended up working out in the U.S. because people woke up on Sunday morning and could still watch the end of that match. But you know, in Australia, this was supposed to be primetime TV, and the match ends at one thirty in the morning. And to the Australians' great credit, the you know, stands were still packed, and the fans, uh, everybody sort of stayed up late. But I'm, I'm not sure in the long run the game is really well served by a six-hour contest. And I think uh, a, a lot can be done to kind of speed things up. All right, kind of transitioning from Australia's big event to the United States' obviously big event, the Super Bowl. We talked to Chris Burke last Tuesday, and things were just getting going, and he had nothing but great things to say about Indianapolis as a host city Kind of getting it on the back end here, how did you think it held up through the week, and would you be interested in seeing Indianapolis be a city that might stay in the rotation as Super Bowl cities? You know, you know that's, my, uh, that's my ancestral home, so I'm uh, Yeah, it is, bit, yes, uh, Bloomington, Indiana. You are. I, I, I actually haven't seen it. I did, did a piece for NFL Network, actually, about uh, how, how, Indiana, how Indiana's like, quietly becoming a football state. No, I, I thought it was great. I mean, it was really uh, it, it was really a solid hosting job. Everything was closed. I think everybody was pleasantly surprised. The weather, they caught a break with that. But even if they didn't, I mean, everything is connected. It, it really, I thought, and this is, you know, you, you've a hundred other people who are more objective than I am seem to agree with this. I mean, I thought it was really exceptional. I was in Dallas last year, and the difference between the two was just remarkable. Um as far as taking the rotation, I think the biggest problem is that stadium only seats about 68,000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Dallas can have a crappy Super Bowl, but if they can get you 50% more fans, that's a lot of revenue. I, I thought Indianapolis would be a great job. I also think, you know, go to these cities, and you, know, you go to Miami or you go to San Diego, even New Orleans, and there's other stuff going on, and it's so spread out. And it's, I mean, Indianapolis, the whole city, I mean, the whole state, really, just sort of focus its energy on this. I mean, this was such a big deal to everybody in the state that it, it really felt special and not just, you know, oh, there's another big game and they'll be coming back in three or four years. So I, um, I, I'd love to see it in Indianapolis again. I just, you know, I, I wish the stadium had 15,000 more seats so the NFL would feel better about the numbers. But, no, it was, it was a great week. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't the one complaint you heard was people were too nice. You know, everybody from the city was trained to say to the visitors, "Have a super day," <laughs> which did get a little grating. But if that's if that's the worst complaint that people have about your hosting, you're uh, you're doing something right. All right, let's get you out of here on this. And this is uh, this always really interests me, kind of how the minds of you elite sports writers kind of work. You know, I can watch the Super Bowl and take out a certain set of storylines, but I want to know what your what that Super Bowl represented to you? What interested you about it? What would compel you to write after you finish watching that game specifically? Oh, you're asking the wrong guy. I mean, I, I was up with Joe Kuznansky in, uh, in the nosebleeds, and I was, I was live tweeting. So it was a very strange experience for me mm-hmm. as far as the game goes. I mean, I was interested. I'll tell you, I mean, one thing, having done scorecasting, I was very interested in the, you know, the reluctant touchdown and when right. I, I had some of the, uh, I had some of the my math geek contacts uh, run the numbers on that. I don't know if this was, has this come out everywhere. I mean, it's, no, I haven't I've heard. I've sort of been in a bubble. So what I, what I, what my math geek, uh, was actually a Harvard Business School professor, just statistics got for me was that 
if the Giants had set up for a last-second field goal from, you know, 20 yards, close in, no timeouts, game win, I mean, the, the probability that they would win the game would, would be about 98%. Okay. If the Giants scored the touchdown, but the, but the Patriots were down five, had the ball 58 seconds to go, and one timeout left, the Giants' probability of winning was 80%. So 98% if the Patriots play defense and they set up the field goal, 80% if they allow the touchdown and get to run their offense. So, so Belichick made what was clearly the right call. Um, you know, not even not even a discussion. But it's pretty strange that in, in the last minute of a Super Bowl, we had one team basically concede a touchdown. And I had other people say, "Well, I don't understand Bradshaw. Why did he? Why didn't he take a knee? Why did he play along? He didn't right. have to score." And then he you're didn't thinking, know. "Come on, guys spent their whole lives playing football, and then in the last minute of the Super Bowl, you really expect them not to score a touchdown." So that was sort of an interesting twist to that game. You, you saw, I mean, you know, they, they got two looks at the end zone and one Hail Mary pass that didn't come that far right. from, uh, you know. So, uh, but I thought, so I thought Belichick actually made the right call. I mean, the other thing I took away, I was in the Giants locker room afterwards, and, you know, you had all the players coming in and the Mara family and the Rooney family, I mean, uh, the Mara family and the, um, the uh, Tish family were both in there, and the guys had their camera phones and they hey mom hold my jersey i'll be right out and this is the most televised you know game of all time and 100 million plus people are watching it's a super bowl but you get there in the tunnel in the locker room after the game and it feels like a little league team i mean it's really funny how all the hype sort of goes away and you end up just being just another team celebrating a victory and they're all trying to you know go back and forth between posing for pictures and, hey, Mom, can you hold this? And I'll be there in a second. And it, it sort of took on this very funny dimension of this monstrously hyped game. And then yet you, you go in that locker room afterwards and it's just just a bunch of dudes who played a game and are happy to celebrate with their families. It was really sort of funny how small and, and community-like that, that locker room got in a hurry. All right, there it is, the great John Wertheim, his sixth time on the Sportscasters. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. And I don't know if you want to meet me, John, but on Saturday I am going to watch Anthony play Cornell in Cornell. Oh, nice. Yes, Boy, so you, I am very uh, excited. I catch you in New Haven sometime. How's that? Oh, that sounds good. Um, did you see they were on? I don't. You might have been away when this happened, actually, but they were on the NBC Sports Network. The Yale versus Harvard game was on. It was sweet. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't see the game. I, I, uh, yeah, I heard I think that. Yale, Yale, could use some, uh, Yale could use some good PR after this uh, Rhodes Scholar debacle, too. Oh, so. I know. My brother actually sent me the New York Times article about that. But Yeah, that was, uh, we're, we're, we're looking for some hockey success to offset all that. All right, John. Thanks for the support. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank take you. Care. All right, we got to thank the great John Wertheim. We are back here for the Sportscasters 10. As we said in the open, it's kind of the end of an era today for the Sportscasters as we move out of Studio A and into our own home studio, which has been in construction for the last few months. Finally ready for us to move in, and we should have a little contest to kind of name 
our new studio. Name huh? the studio. That'd be kind of fun. But um, before we kind of end that era, which has been a really great run here in Studio A, I thought that we should kind of lay out the 10 best guests that each of us feel. You know, it's our own separate list of the top 10 guests in Studio A, which is basically all of season one and the first six episodes of season two. Let's just go back and forth, Don, and let me know who you started with as your number 10, working your way down to your favorite guest. All right, my number 10 is probably the coolest guest we've had so far, just based on uh, overall notoriety uh, in pop culture in general, not just the sports world. And that's Duff McKagan. He was on maybe three weeks ago. Season two, episode four. So two weeks ago. Yeah, so big name. Uh, he gave us a fun, long interview that was pretty well received. So I'll go with Duff at my 10 spot. My number 10 is a guy who should be higher probably. He's been a great friend of the show for a long time. He's kind of switched jobs, which has kind of distanced him a little bit from the podcast, but that doesn't mean that at any given week, at any given time, he couldn't be on because he's still a real good friend of ours. And that's Zach Rosenfield, also known as Sooner Zach. He's been on the show a bunch of times, and uh, we miss him, and hopefully we'll talk to him more as the NCAA tournament and golf season uh, comes around the corner here. He's probably dropped more F-bombs than any other guests that we've had. Probably. (laughs) My number nine is maybe the most recognizable voice we have on here, and that's Kenny Albert. He's been nice enough to do our show twice, I believe. He has been on twice. And he's been a gentleman both times. So it's always nice when the big names aren't too cool to uh, to help us out a little bit. And he's he's been great. Absolutely. My number nine is Mike Pereira from Fox Sports, the former head mm-hmm. of NFL officials. He was on season one, episode 55. Right before Christmas time, right before Christmas break. And he was just a really, really genuine and nice guy. It seemed like he had a lot of fun being on the podcast. And I'm pretty confident we'll be able to have him on again in the future when it's appropriate. My number eight, you're talking about genuine and nice guys. The rest of my list was pretty much nice guys, but is uh, Puck Daddy. He could be probably higher on this list too, but Greg Wyshynski, he is has been with us since very early on. Episode two is his debut. And he's done quite a few probably at least five yeah around five episodes and like we said earlier we're getting back into hockey again so i'm sure we'll have him on more all right my number eight is one that you just mentioned and that's kenny albert again he's been on twice super great guy and uh everything that don said i agree with and that's why he's on my list my number seven again another good guy he's bailed us out one or two times it's damon hack uh great writer too. yeah i don't know it's it's hard to say more about these guys than that they're good guys uh, above all else. I mean, they're great sports personalities, but just excellent, excellent guys. All right. My number seven is Phil Taylor, who was just on a few weeks ago, season two, episode three. The reason he made my list is just because I thought like that was one of the best interviews we've ever done. It just, you know, with every guest, I think we have a few certain goals that we're looking to get out of the interview. And that was one where I think we just got more than what we planned. And it just, I just really loved it. I listened to it back a couple times, and it just felt really good. And, I mean, he's the back page columnist for SI. And yeah. For podcasts that SI has been such an integral part of, to have the back page columnist was a real honor for us, and he was just great. Uh, number six, one of our other guests, Richard Deitch, sometimes accuses us as leading his bandwagon, and that's Lee Jenkins. Again, a guy that at a moment's notice will – Drop what he's doing to let us do an interview. One of the nicest guys in sports. 
My number six is actually Richard Deitch, who has been on the show multiple times. He likes to bust our balls, which is fun. Yeah. He also helps us a lot. He does. That big break that we almost got in August would have never happened without him. That's right. And uh, he's not afraid to tweet even when he's not on if we do a good job. And when he's on, he does a great job and brings a lot of attention to the show. He's maybe one of those guys who's like bigger in the Twitter world, whatever that is, than the actual like sports world, right, right. you know, for whatever reason. But, you know, Twitter is a big way that we grow the show. So he's been a really important guest and he's got ties to Buffalo and he's another one who is really early to the party. I think he yep. debuted it in episode three. My number five, you already mentioned him as Zach Rosenfeld uh, for all the reasons you mentioned. Plus, uh, he's one of the guys that feels like we have like a personal relationship with him outside the podcast. He, he makes you feel comfortable on the podcast when you're doing an interview. It just feels different. It feels very conversational with Zach. All right. My number five is Mike Tirico, who was on season one, episode 50. Dave Damashek said that it was the biggest guest we've ever had. And it's kind of hard to argue with him. He's the current play-by-play man for Monday Night Football, Monday Night Football which is you know the longest-running sports series in history. And it was a huge honor to have him on, and he had a lot of fun with it. Some of our ESPN guests haven't been great in the past. Greg Easterbrook comes to mind as if we were <laughs> doing a bottom ten. You know, I, I hate to admit that, but we've had a couple bombs. But Mike Tirico is a guy who just made us feel like we were – King shit, I want to say. so. <laughs> My number four is a guy that almost feels a little bit like our guy. Uh, he's not a guy you hear a ton of on other platforms. That's Kerry J. Byrne. We've had guys like Easterbrook, guys like... Uh, who's the guy that's escaping my mind? Here? Aaron Schatz. Aaron Schatz that do kind of similar work as far as the nerdy side of football, the number crunching, the stats stuff. But Kerry J. Byrne, he's kind of... Kind of our guy. We've gone back to him maybe three or four times, and he never disappoints us. And he's always, always really accommodating. So he's my number four. And one thing I'll say is that the connection between the sportscasters and Cold Hard Football Facts and FootballNation.com is going to grow in the future. Right. That's a relationship that's going to become more and more relevant to our listeners. All right. My number four is Duff McKagan. Look at I'm a longtime Guns N' Roses fan, and it was honestly a moment that I never dreamed of. Uh, even yeah, before really. this podcast came on, I never thought that Duff McKagan would be a part of it. And I have to thank, again, ESPN PR for setting that up. And uh, that's why I guess he's a little higher on my list. Maybe it's just because I'm a little bit bigger Guns N' Roses fan than you are, Don. Yeah. Uh, my number three, you've already mentioned, he's our unofficial PR guy, he calls himself. That's Richard Deitch. Like you said, it's just fun that uh, he's definitely a guy that knows who we are, who remembers the interviews. Because, as you said, he'll bust our balls on Twitter and whatnot. So, Richard Deitch is high on my list. My number three is the great Dave Damashek. I struggled with my top three because I feel like any one of them could be at any other spot on the list. But Dave Damashek is a guy who is a mentor to us. Uh, he's a guy that really would consider doing the show at any time if he could. Um and we're going to have him on again soon because it's, it's been too long. But there wouldn't be a Sportscasters if there wasn't a Dave Damashek. We've said that before. And really my next three spots, starting with Dave, they could be inter- interchangeable. My number two is a homer pick, and that's Tim Graham. He's another guy that makes us feel like 
a friend relationship with him as opposed to a guy that's just doing us a favor by calling up the podcast. It feels like uh, I know you've met him in person. Yep. And he's been great. And uh, he always does a good job. Again, it's it's more fun when it's conversational, and he's one of the best at it. Uh, my number two is John Wertheim. Actually, one of the guests today made a sixth appearance on the podcast today. You just listened to that interview. And, you know, the thing about Wertheim is he's a mentor. He's a, a big part of getting Tom Verducci on the show finally. He looks out for us. Uh, he cares about us. He'll do the show in the busiest of times. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate. And that's why he's as high as he is. Yeah, Wertheim was an oversight on my part. My number one is probably not a huge surprise, but it's Dave Damashek. Like you said, there wouldn't be an us without Dave. And, again, I keep – every single one of my guys, I keep talking about how nice they are. I need a thesaurus for the word nice. But the stuff off the air is what make, makes Dave so nice. He goes out of his way uh, no matter what he's doing. He'll, 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 after, he'll wait till he puts his kids to sleep and – then he'll come on with us. Uh, he was leaving a hospital at one point, but he still made time for us. And then after the interview, he'll talk to – I mean, he's talked to us for an hour after interviews before, just kind of seeing how we're doing and telling us how he's doing. So Dave is will probably always be my favorite guest on the show. All right, my number one guest is Lee Jenkins. Um, it was said before by Richard Deitch that we are, quote, unquote, in the can for Lee <laughs> Jenkins, right. and I'm proud of that. Uh, Lee is – in my mind, the nicest guy in all sports media. Uh, he's willing to talk to me really at any time. He's, he's very kind. He's very honest. Um, gives us scoops. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, between him, Wertheim, and Damashek, any of them could be anywhere, one, two, or three. Sure. Um, some kind of notable omissions. Jason Lacnafora should have probably made a list. Yeah. Uh, he's been really good to us. Um, who else do you think kind of got snubbed? The the Danettes. Right. Uh, Andrew Perloff and I, I Todd mean, Fritz. They're not quite Perloff huge on twice, names, Fritz once. But they're both very enthusiastic when they come on. They both have a good time. Uh, one of them, I think, wanted the interview, actually, afterward, which was cool. Yep, that was Fritz. Um, yeah, but I, I think probably the biggest uh, – did neither of us say Butcher Grass? That's kind of a surprise. No, neither of us did. He was close on mine. Yeah, Butcher Grass is probably a close one. Like I said, Lacnafora maybe deserved it. A couple big names didn't make it, like Peter King and yeah. Richard Dyke, or uh, excuse me, um, Adam Schefter. I will say from Peter King, he was he could have made it. It's probably not a fault of his own. No, no. I mean he he did fine in the interview. We've been pretty candid about it in the past that he started the interview, and we thought like, oh boy, this right. just might not be good. But by the end of it, I think he got into a groove and. So did we. So he could have made it. All right. Well, that's it for the Sportscasters 10 today. We're going to take a break and come back with the puck daddy himself, Greg Wyshynski. Our next guest is from Matawan, New York, and is a graduate of the University of Maryland. He is the editor and main contributor of the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo.com. He was one of the stars of this season's 24-7 Road to the Winter Classic and is currently the co-host of the daily podcast Merrick vs. Lashinsky. Last month, the Hockey News named him the 92nd most powerful man in hockey. 
He is making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Greg Wyshynski. How are you doing today, Puck Daddy? I appreciate everything you've said, but I'm going to have to stab you with something sharp for, for, for saying that I'm from New York. I'm a proud Jersey boy, so I would never, ever, ever identify with the Empire State. So is Madawan in New Jersey? Is that a mistake on mine? Or are you not even from Madawan at all? Or where did I get that information? No, I'm from Madawan, New Jersey. Madawan is exit uh, 120 on the, on, on the parkway. If you take exit 11 up the turnpike, you get there through uh, routes, uh, Route 34. Uh, you know, probably take Route 9 as well. It's all, it's all connected in Jersey. But no, sir, uh, my, my father grew up in Flushing. Uh, my mom is from uh, West Orange, New Jersey. I, I'm a Jersey boy. Gotcha. You know, I knew that, but I, you know, I figured maybe, you know, maybe it's just born in New York. I mean, the Giants are Jersey boys, and they had a parade in New York and a parade in New Jersey today, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand how that, how that whole thing went down. I mean, the, the Giants especially are, are a New Jersey team. Like the Jets obviously have their roots at Shea right. and, uh, and the, you know, the Hofstra connection with all the practice there. The Giants are a Jersey team. I mean, the, the, the majority of their fan base lives in North Jersey. Everyone knows they're a Jersey team. I don't even, the only, as, as, as Chris Christie once said uh, recently, uh, the big sack governor from New Jersey. Love the him, only the thing New York about the only thing New York about the Giants is the NY on their helmets. <laughs> and don't they have training camp in like uh, where do you call it? Um, Albany, New York, the capital of the state. Do they do? Well, you know that's what I'm saying. It's, if, if, if that's what I'm a Jets fan, I don't know where the Giants practice. But if they are in Albany, that's that's New York State. That's not even New York City. They're <laughs> as far away from being a New York City team as as the Flyers are. All right. So, uh, you know, it, it, it pains me when people pretend that they're, they're not a New Jersey team. Yeah, ridiculous. But I'm sorry about that mistake. But I thought you'd be more excited about how I, I, I singled you out as one of the stars of 24-7 this year. <laughs> you, made your, you made your appearance on the show. I'm like, I rewound it like three, te- three times. I'm like, is that, is that the puck, Dad? Yeah, it was, it was like three times. It was like me standing talking to Bridge Galois. Right. And- and then, you know, the, the, I was in the shot three different times. It was really funny. Like, you know, I, I had random people say, hey, what's up? And on Twitter, people were, like, bugging me about it and stuff. And it was, it was one of those things where I got to actually experience what these players experience, which is that you, you literally have no idea that you're being filmed by HBO. You're just kind of doing your thing, right? And, and then, lo and behold, you like, end up on, on, on the show. So that was, it's kind of interesting to see how, how the, what those guys go through in a sort of a, a very micro way. And, you know, I got a beef, and, and I, I'm going to write an editor to the editor, but there's absolutely no way you're not more powerful than Peter Moore, the EA Worldwide Studios president. I mean, come no, on. Fun. But, yeah, but, you know, the minute, the minute people start asking, like, why I'm not higher on the power list for the hockey news, they'll reassess it, and they'll probably come to the conclusion that, that I came to, which is that there's simply no logical reason why I should be ranked ahead of Darren Drager. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that there is a lack of scrutiny of the list and we can just kind of keep it as is, and, and I'll continue my, my slow incremental climb from, uh, from being uh, number 100 that one year. Well, I actually know exactly why you're ahead of Darren Drager. You didn't know, you didn't know why? No, I have no idea why. You're five appearances on the sportscasters. Darren Drager at zero. Yep, he, he gets, yeah, he, all he is is like a, a, a rumors guy with, like, 200,000 followers on Twitter. But right. this podcaster is what put me over right. the top. I completely agree. You know, and number 78, Ryan Miller, is going to fall way down the list next year. So you'll be at least number 91 next year. And that's kind of where I want to start. Being away from it, because I'm right on top of it, so it's hard for me 
to really gauge this, but you're away from it a bit. What happened from November 17th when the Sabres were two points out of first place in the Eastern Conference? Admittedly, that's only about five weeks into the season, six weeks into the season, but regardless, they were playing at a really high level. And then injuries happen, of course, but that happens to everyone. What happened to this team? And I think I read in your blog they'd have to go 24-9 in the second half to make the playoffs. Do you see any reason why that would be doable? No, it's not no. doable. I think I think they're cooked. But as far as what happens, I mean, you, the injuries can't be dismissed. They were they were significant injuries. They and, and I mean, you want to dismiss them because it's the Sabers, and 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 you want to talk about it being old hat now. I mean, for Christ's sake, you figure Tim Connolly's off the roster. You don't have to deal with this every year. But lo and behold, it happens again. Uh, the injuries were a factor, and you know, it's one of those situations. We talked to Jack Edwards, who obviously is not exactly the most you know, impartial observer. Right. But we talked to him on, on the podcast about the, the game where Lucic ran over Miller and there was no response. And there's no question that, well, one, I mean, obviously Miller was, was injured off that play. But two, it really kind of showed a, a psychological fracturing of that team that maybe people didn't realize was going to be there, where, you know, the impact of, of what happened there, the questions that that team faced, the almost crisis of, crisis of conscience that they had, after that situation went down, I think really did affect them in some way in the midpoint of the season. I mean, from a confidence standpoint. Yeah, and you know that 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 play. If you look back at that, I mean, as you said, the effects Miller is Miller is hurt. Definitely, definitely hurt the locker room. And Miller just he, besides being hurt because that injury is passed, he just hasn't been the same. You know yeah. what I mean? It like it almost seems like he's just not comfortable in his crease. It, it's really bizarre, the, like how low his confidence is, considering where he was, like even two years ago at the Olympics. Well, and it's also a case where you know, as, as the team struggles, there's more, there are more and more questions about Miller. He's facing more scrutiny. You have all of this talk about whether or not, for the betterment of the team, it's better to cut ties with him, turn the team over to Enros, and, and whatever goal you get coming back the other way. So. It's a, it's a combination of different factors, really, I think, for Miller uh, that, that all sort of came together at the same time where the team is dropping down the standings. He's having to answer questions about his future in the city. And uh, and this is, you know, supposed to be a franchise player. So I imagine that also was not exactly the, uh, the greatest of times for him. You know, you mentioned before that it's not unusual to be talking about the Sabres maybe being soft or being injured, things like that. But one thing is being different is talking about the Sabres being able to change things basically with a blank check. And and that's the feeling that you have, that, you know, if the Sabres miss the playoffs this year, which it seems like they will, they're going to have to make a bunch of changes. And the one thing that's going to be different this year is they're going to be able to make those changes with money. And I wonder, do you think that Darcy Regeer is – the the guy that Sabres fans should want to make those decisions? Or do you think he's a classic example of a guy who's a perfect penny-pinching GM, but with an open wallet, he's maybe not quite as savvy? It's an interesting thought in, in the sense that I think there's there, there have been some coaches in the NHL that are better at sort of like working on a budget, working with with a, a certain kind of talent, and then once you put them on a team that, with, with significant talent, then all of a sudden things kind of fall apart. And, and I, I don't know if GMs are the same kind of animal, um, wherein he's better at sort of the, the money ball aspect of it than, than trying to manage a, 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 a significant financial commitment. Um, as far as the deafness of him goes, and his ability to kind of turn this thing around by spending some money, 
that kind of comes back to who's calling the shots. I mean, do we do we look at the money that was spent last summer and say those are Darcy Regeer decisions? That's where he's going to Pagula and saying, here are the guys that I want. Where's where's the money, Daddy Warbucks? Or is that Pagula exerting his own influence and saying, okay, I like this guy, I like this guy, let's make it happen? Um, it's not completely. Um, it's not completely speaking at a turn to say that an owner could do that or a team executive can do that. I mean, the the, law, the story has always been that Brian Campbell in in Chicago was a uh, a John McDonough move. Uh, the story has always been that uh, Ilya Kovalchuk in New Jersey was a Jeff Vanderbeek move. Um, so it's not exactly uh, like I said that outlandish to, to wonder who's really driving some of the decisions. Um, but again, you look back at what happened last summer and the decisions that were made. If those were Darcy's, then you, you really want him to have the uh, the open checkbook for a second straight year. Absolutely. All right, let's move let's move on from the 13th place in the Eastern Conference because there are more interesting things. And and one thing is is that I was speaking a couple weeks ago with Michael Farber from Sports Illustrated, and he made a point that I'm I'm curious to get your take on. He thought that as a media as this hockey media hockey covering media that we've all done a bad job with the Sidney Crosby story in the sense that it's it's not news enough that it's something we should be talking about every day based on his influence in the league and kind of really made me question what I've been reading and watching recently because it doesn't feel like if anything, that it's undercovered. I, I, do you agree, disagree with Farber there? And, and what's your take on Crosby and where he's at and, and how important he is to the league kind of going forward? Insofar as his injury? Yeah, he just said... We were just talking about this in the podcast today. I mean, like, obviously the injury, to me, has been covered quite well. Um, the impact of the injury has been covered quite well. I mean, Crosby's concussion last January was the pivot for Rule 48. It was the pivot for the improvements to 48. It was the pivot for the boarding calls. Um, it was the pivot for increased concussion protocol. It's, you know, the, the, the name that's first mentioned by any critic of the, of the league and, and it's, it's player safety. I mean, it, there's no question that it's been covered, and, and there's no question that every single day the Penguins get questions about Crosby and, and about his comeback and about uh, how far he is from returning to the ice. Where I think the interesting things happened, and, and again, we talked about this on the podcast today, is this notion of was this last injury for Sid a concussion at all? Or, or was it a neck injury of some kind? Was it the, uh, you know, the, the, the bruised soft tissue right. versus being a traditional concussion? And once that came out, something really interesting happened, which is that the amount of, of ink that was spilled talking about Sid as the face of concussions in the NHL, talking about Sid as the face of an epidemic, well, we didn't read all of these stories in those same publications about whether, whether or not if you spent the same amount of money and the same amount of attention and gave the same amount of doctor visits to a fourth liner with a concussion, whether or not maybe some of the concussions we think have been diagnosed would actually be neck injuries instead. And to me, that would be kind of like a really important issue to cover, you know, whether or not um, a good per percentage of the concussions that we think we're dealing with might actually be something else, but it doesn't fit the agenda. You know, it doesn't fit the right. agenda of people that have been using Sid 
as a reason to decry fighting or using Sid as a reason to increase player safety and get rid of all contact to the head. I mean, he his injury and the concussion issue overall have been politicized since the start. And so, you know, when 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 I say or when, when Merrick says or when anybody else says, you know, should we re- rethink this a little bit? What if these aren't all concussions? You know, we can easily be painted as people that are trying to put our heads back in the sand about this. I'm not. I mean, I think that there is a concussion problem in the league. I, I use the word epidemic. I know the NHL can't because of legal concerns, but I think it's a serious situation. But at the same time, if if we're going to use Sid as a as a as the face of this thing, as a reason to ban fighting, ban headshots, wrap these guys in bubble wrap, whatever. Um, isn't it fair then to spend at least the same amount of time discussing the fact that we've now learned that this new thing wasn't a concussion and how many other guys are going through the same thing Sid is? And it really bothers me that that hasn't been the case. Sportscasters are here with Greg Wyshynski from Puck Daddy on Yahoo and Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast, which he's mentioned a few times, which you can easily find on iTunes. I want to keep with that for a second, and I wanted to ask you, you know, how much of this, you mentioned the epidemic of the concussions, and I wonder, how much of it do you think the responsibility is on the league and how much is on the players? And what I mean by that is the league could maybe do some things, like they've already changed some rules. They could maybe put the red line back in to slow players down. They could maybe allow a player to kind of put their hand on a guy when they're when they're directing them into the boards to protect them a little bit. But the players could also do things like making sure they wear the best helmets, not the most comfortable or coolest looking. They make sure they have their chin guards on, make sure they're wearing mouth guards. Where do you think the balance is there, and who do you think ultimately is more responsible either way? Um, I think, well, obviously, player responsibilities, I, I, I tend to agree with, uh, with Don Cherry on this one, of all people. I think player responsibility is a big thing, um, but, but I also think that the, the supplemental discipline process in the league has really helped Make these players be more responsible, and uh, and you look at a guy like Matt Cook, some of the other players that have been in contact with Shanahan on their own for for the, the majority of the season to kind of figure out what they're doing and how that fits, and 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 uh, you know are, are they on the right course? I think players are taking some responsibility and trying to alter the way they hit. So that's a good thing. But the equipment stuff, you know, it's it's always dicey, and I know that they've talked about this this, this constant conversation about. Um, the new uh, the new shoulder pads and and new helmets and things like that insofar as trying to increase player safety it always becomes a very dicey proposition because the NHLPA doesn't want to doesn't want to put their players at a disadvantage they don't want to sacrifice what they think are innovations in player safety uh, for the sake of uh, of you know the, the league saying hey do this and, and we think the game is going to be safer so. I understand the hesitation as far as the equipment goes, and then uh, then you come back to whether or not they're going to change the rules again. And I'm 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 not someone who wants to see the red line put back in. I think the, the one of the reasons the game is so exciting is because of the the up and down nature of the whole thing. So um, they're at a real crossroads, which is you know are are you willing to live with the the danger of playing a really fast game? Uh, versus the entertainment value, and, and unfortunately, you know, I just, <laughs> I'm someone who errs on the side of entertainment value, and then you kind of fill in the rest and figure out how to make the game safe. 
you know, the league really moves fast on the ice and off, and we kind of go from thing to thing. You know, we kind of start at the beginning of the season, and then we just quickly move from segment to segment of the year, and we're really close, already only three weeks away from the training deadline, which I believe is February 28th this year, which would be exactly three weeks away. Who's available to make teams better, and who's going to be the big name or names as we get closer to that date, or are we not sure yet because the teams who are at the 54, 55 point mark need to decide if they're going to make a run or if they're going to sell parts off? Well, I, I think the Habs will sell, and, and I think as the Habs sell, you'll see a guy like Travis Mowen move. Um, you know, when he's healthy, I think Hal Gill has been bandied about for for very good reasons, which is that he's got a ton of value to the teams that are contending. Um, and also, I think that he probably is a, is a guy that doesn't necessarily fit in the plans going forward for Montreal. So those are two names. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of parity there. You got a lot of teams that are still in the hunt. Um, you have a lot of teams that you, you figure could be sellers um, uh, of some significant players like an Alex Hensky, but what's the asking price? I mean, already we've heard Jim Rutherford of the, of the Hurricanes asking for just an astronomical <laughs> figure for a guy like Tuomo Rutu, who I think is, is kind of a complimentary player. So it really all depends on, on what they set the value for and, and what they're willing to, uh, to bring their, their cost down to from, from these teams at the deadline. Yeah, you know, it, like I said, I think in the West it's five points from seven to twelve. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, which one of those teams maybe moves down or moves up and changes from buyer to seller. In the Eastern Conference, it's, geez, it's six seventh is sixty two, and the Sabers are at fifty at thirteen. So maybe not quite as close there, but, but yeah, the parity is definitely going to be an issue. So you're off to a game tonight. Where are you going? Headed to uh, to watch the Caps and the uh, Panthers this evening. Uh, big Southeast Division playoff game, basically, which is kind of weird to think about that. The fact that the Caps are in a dogfight, and even weirder to think about that. You know, it, it's the way the points are being distributed in the Southeast Division. It's not completely outlandish to think that they're going to be a a, a one team division this right. year as far as playoff seeding goes. So, whoever finishes first might might be the only rep, rep from the division and. You know, the Caps are a team that, that have looked like they're getting out of this funk a few times, and then they kind of fall back into it. The Panthers are a, a real funny team in the sense that um, they were obviously the big, one of the biggest surprises at the beginning of the season, and then kind of settled into, uh, you know, a, a good clip, but, but nothing great. Um, and, and I think, obviously, the injury to, to Jose Dedo has been a, a problem for them. So it will be interesting to see what these guys do down the stretch, especially Florida, because... You know, you figure they've spent this amount of money already um, to try to create this team into a playoff contender. Uh, no reason to believe they're not going to be active again at the deadline to probably bring in some expiring contracts to help bolster it. Yeah, and if Florida loses tonight in regulation, they drop from third in the Eastern Conference to ninth, kind of to, to prove your point of the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, last thing. I'm going to get you out of here on this. What do you know about Corey Conacher? Uh, I don't know. What do I know? Doesn't ring a bell at all? Not completely, no. No, not completely. Okay, Corey Conacher is a kid who four years ago was the youngest player in Division One hockey. He played at a college locally here, Canisius College, which is one of the worst programs in all of D1 hockey. Um, he ended up the number one scorer of all time after four years. He has type 1 diabetes. Uh, he started out for Elmira in the East Coast Hockey League last year, made his way up to the NH or the AHL for a little bit, and is tearing up the AHL on a one-way con 
tracked in Norfolk. He scored two goals in the All-Star game. He is well over a point a game. And uh, he's going to be on the show in the next week or two. And I was just curious if it's a name that's ringing out or if it's just a name that I know because I know Corey Conacher. So I was just curious. Uh, well, it would be a name I knew if I had gone to the AHL All-Star game with my dad. My dad went because it was in Atlantic City. And he loved the idea of going to a, a hockey game in Atlantic City. So if, had I been there, I probably would have... Uh, because he's in the AHL now, he said? Yeah, he plays for Norfolk and he was in the he's All-Star in Norfolk? game. Yeah. yeah. So, so the name would have rung a bell there, uh, but other than that, I I don't really spend a lot of time scanning the the AHL rosters or the scoring leaders. So I'll I'll plead ignorance there. But uh, he's not related to Pat Conacher, is he? I I don't know Pat, but he could be. Well, Pat used to be one of the uh, the quintessential checking forwards of your uh, 1988 Stanley Cup. Ch- uh, I'm sorry. Patrick Division champion, New Jersey Devils. So, was, is but he like, from Conacher is not, not exactly like Conacher is not exactly a, uh, a, 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 a uncommon name. I don't think in hockey circles, so right. probably not the case. All right, Wish. Thanks for joining us, Bob. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Yep. All right, the sportscasters are back here. We're going to update the book club real quick for you. The book club book of the month this month is the last great game, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. That book is by Gene Wojciechowski from ESPN. This is an ESPN Books publication. And the other night, I finished the book uh, ahead of a little bit ahead of time, but, you know, it got to the point where I just got into it and I kept my head down and it's not exactly those guys have all the fun in terms of length. It's a very reasonable, oh, 300 pages or so. And about 120 pages into it, I just got really excited about the book and decided to just bury my head and finish it. You know, the whole Christian Leitner angle and his connection to Western New York was really interesting to me. And uh, I learned a lot about Christian Leitner and we're going to have Gene on in a couple of weeks, and I want to make a comparison with him about a previous subject of a book club, Book of the Month, Walter Payton and Christian Leitner. And I wonder if maybe as you're reading, you might pick up on what I'm thinking of, so I won't spill the beans on that just yet. But again, it's the last great game, Duke's, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. It's by Gene Wojciechowski, available on Amazon, where books are sold, available for all the different ebook formats. And read with us. Let us know what you think. Give us an email to sportscasters at gmail.com. And we have found out that Gene is going to join us on February 21st, which is two weeks from today. That would be Season 2, Episode 8. And he's going to join us. So if you have any questions for Gene, make sure you email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. We're going to take another break and be right back. Our next guest is from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. After college, he spent five years in Colorado covering NCAA hockey, the Denver sports scene, and the Air Force Academy for the Colorado Springs Gazette. He also covered Memphis basketball for the Commercial Appeal. Today, he is a national sports columnist for the made-for-iPad newspaper, The Daily. Those without an iPad can find some of his columns on foxsports.com. His work has also been honored with awards from the Associated Press Sports Editors and the Colorado Sports 
Press Association, a warm sportscasters. Welcome for the third time to the awesome Dan Wolken. How are you doing today, Dan? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing really good. Excited to have you on the show today. You know, I was, I kind of, you know, I'm a big Apple guy. I don't know if I've told you that before, but I mean, I'm such a big Apple guy that I was, I often close my day out by reading the news of the day in the Apple world. And just a couple of days ago, I was reading and the big story was kind of that the daily had reached one year. And I thought, you know, we got to get Dan back on and, and find out kind of how things are going at the daily. So kind of in the most generic and general terms possible, I just want to kind of ask you, how are things going at the daily after one year? Yeah, it's great. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's really been a little bit longer than that because uh, a lot of the people who work there have been have been working there for, you know, a year and three months, four months, six months uh, in the run up time to get this off the ground so um so they've been there a lot longer than a year but in terms of the actual publication uh yeah this last week was the one-year anniversary of the first uh live issue and uh you know i know everyone's excited about uh year two and and you know it it's uh it keeps evolving and 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 now they've moved to uh, a second platform with the android so that that was uh, a really exciting move um, right after right after Christmas, they uh, they launched on the Android, and uh, so that obviously expands the scope of of the project. And um, there's going to be some other platforms uh, coming up as well. So, you know, in terms of what uh, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, you know the reach of the product, it's not just an iPad newspaper now. It's it's going to be on more tablets and and other devices. So, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's an exciting time to be. Um, you know, in in the uh, in that space, and and you know, we've proven to clearly be the lead uh, the lead news organization for you know for the tablet space. So uh, so everyone's really excited about uh, about the second year and, and beyond. You know, as uh, someone who's worked for newspapers for a long time, like yourself, and and kind of transitioned to this different thing, and now you've done it for a year. Uh, kind of what have you discovered are the plus and minuses of writing it in such a for such a young kind of format well you know for me uh it's i, I you know it's hard to think of any minuses because i have been uh you know i've, I've done exactly uh what what i what i hope to do and, and what what they told me i was going to do and um you know they've kept all of uh all of uh what we talked about you know in the in in the hiring process in terms of what you know what what the product was going to be all about we've, we've you know, kept to that, so that's exciting. Um, you know, in in terms of uh, you know my specific role as, as the sports columnist, you know, I'm still trying to learn. You know, what plays well, what people want to read, uh, what what res- people respond to, um, and that's just a, a constant you know process that a columnist has to go through. Um, but uh, you know, you know, in terms of, of of how it works, you know, it's interesting. You know, what time of day people read us. Uh, you know, and I don't want to characterize it as a plus or a minus, but, you know, it impacts uh, the way you, you look at things. I mean, we would rarely be, for, for a sports fan, the first uh, the first read, uh, you know, in terms of after a sporting event. You know, we're more of a, you know, an afternoon, uh, either early morning uh, when people are, you know, in transit or, or, you know, when they come home after work at night. Um, so, you know, so we're not necessarily the first read on a lot of sports issues, and, so that kind of changes, you know, the way you, you, you want to approach some of these things. I'm, I'm, 
uh, you know, I'm still feeling my way through that, but, but, uh, you know, but overall, you know, we're trying to be, um, at as many big events as possible and cover as many big issues as possible. You know, it kind of sounds like you're kind of talking about what we all learned in college that like thing that was repeated in almost every course we took of kind of knowing your audience. Is that, is that kind of been what you, you know, everyone always preaches, you got to know your audience, got to know your audience. Is that kind of what you've been kind of adjusting to at the daily is kind of, like you said, kind of understanding when people as sports fans read this and kind of what they're looking for at that time of the day? Sure. And also, you know, now the, 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 um, you know, the iPad is such a great device and we can, now figure out, you know, what people click on and what they read and how long they spend with certain types of stories. So you, you can get a much better idea of what, uh, of what, of what sells and what, what gets people going. And that's, uh, uh, that's a big plus of, of, of the tablet technology. You know, being a national columnist, you're, you're kind of open to have the freedom to kind of bounce around from sport to sport and kind of write about different things where, you know, when you were specifically co- covering NCAA hockey, you, you probably didn't write a column about the Super Bowl. You wrote columns about NCAA hockey. H- having the freedom of being a national columnist and being to kind of write about whatever you like, do you find that you like to move from subject to subject, or do you find that you kind of have a niche that people know you as a writer, and do you kind of focus on that? Like, I kind of know, and I think of you, I kind of think of, like, how good you are with, like, college sports and college scandal and things like that it seems like you're always got great information about that not discrediting any of the other work you do i'm not doing that i'm just saying that that right. just kind of seems to me as well, one of your strengths what do you think about that you definitely you definitely uh i think have to play to your strengths um and and yeah college sports and those things that you mentioned are definitely uh, i think some of my strengths and the things that, that i've got the, the strongest um you know background in so there's no question about that uh, but you know, but you you also have to be varied, and um, and obviously you know if you're not writing about the NFL a lot, you're 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 not going to be as relevant as you want to be because the the NFL is is so big. Um, so you know you have to look at that too, and uh, and I, I've I've learned a lot about the NFL and, and learned a lot about how to write about it uh, this this year, and and also you know you, you you can never go wrong writing about you know big issues and big personalities. I mean I've written I think three times about Peyton Manning this month um alone or the the past month alone. So um so you can never go wrong when you're talking about, you know, the biggest people in in sports, uh, you know, because they, they cut across such a wide range of, of readers. And where do you stand on Peyton Manning? Do you think that we'll see him next year? Or do you think he'll be a Colt again? Kind of what's your opinion on Peyton overall? Well, you know, it's hard to speculate on the health situation because we just don't know. Right. And I don't think anybody knows, but um I think regardless I don't think he's going to be back with the Colts and uh uh I don't think um you know I I think that uh, uh you know they have a um guy in Andrew Luck, you know, who fell into their hands this year. And you have to take him and if you take Andrew Luck, you can't take him to sit him, you have to take him to play him. Um, he's going to be 23 years old this year. He he he's got to get experience, and and I think um, you know, and I think we'll see uh, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, I would be very surprised if Peyton Manning is anywhere near the Colts next year. What interested you about the Super Bowl on Sunday? I mean, we kind of all kind of watch it through our own eyes, and and certain things appeal to other people. Was there a story or storyline that really interested you uh, in regards to the game? Well, um, 
you know, a lot of what goes into the lead up to a Super Bowl is is really, you know, just a lot of psychobabble. Uh and and you know, there's just so much time between the championship game and the Super Bowl that you know, that it's really uh it's really difficult to you know, to not wear out, you know, these storylines and they just, just kinda calcify and become you know, they they become you know, the big issues and, and, you know, a lot of it was around Peyton or, uh, Eli Manning and his legacy and, and, you know, and then, you know, the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick legacy. So a lot of legacy talk on both sides. Um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, the Patriots, what interested me the most is that the Patriots all year long, I, you know, I just never really thought they were that good. Uh, they, they certainly didn't have a very good defense. They, they, they went thirteen and three, but didn't beat a single team with a over five hundred right. uh, record. Until Baltimore. So, you know, and I just thought they got there right until Baltimore. I just thought you know they 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 only got there on the strength of you know Tom Brady having a brilliant season and and Bill Belichick being the you know the coaching uh, genius that he is and and I and and I, I was just curious you know to see, um, you know could could a team like that really win the Super Bowl and obviously they couldn't. Uh, at the end, and, and and you know the defense needed one stop, and 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 didn't um, didn't come up with it. So so that's that. You know, you are a guy who certainly has embraced and loves Twitter. You have almost twelve thousand tweets to your name, and I just wonder, you know, how the Super Bowl and Twitter went together for you this year. And if it was different than in the past, because for me, I think that this was kind of the first Super Bowl, maybe a little bit last. Well, yeah, definitely last year, where I kind of was watching the game hand in hand with this second screen, where I was kind of monitoring Twitter, and you know, it was almost like if you took five minutes off, there was a gap in your in your feed because there's well, just so much action there. I didn't, you know, I didn't really look at Twitter while the plays were happening or, or in between plays. I kept my focus on the field. I did. I did check Twitter uh, at the commercial breaks, and you know, because when you're when you're there at the game, you don't see the commercials and all the stuff that goes on uh, during the, the the TV timeouts, because uh, you know you're just not you're you're, watch, you're not watching TV, so it, it's a little quiet, a little boring, and uh, it's actually good to go to Twitter, uh, you know, during the timeouts to kind of get the instant analysis and then see what people are talking about with regard to the commercials. But, uh, you know, when the game's going on, I, I, my focus is totally on the field. How has Twitter helped you with your column at the, the Daily in the sense that both are kind of, you know, are obviously in, in the same part of the media being that they're on the, on the Internet? And, you know, when I think of my iPad, two of the first things that come to mind are Twitter and the Daily. And I was just wondering how, like, Twitter has impacted you as a writer. Um, well... You know, it's interesting to you can get instant feedback. You can kind of throw out ideas as as trial balloons sometimes, just to see what kind of response they get. I do that every now and then. Um, you know, you know if if, you, if there's an issue that's really hot on Twitter, it might make a good column. Uh, so those are kind of some of the ways that that you know that I um, you know that I, I I let it impact me. And you know, it's, Twitter's Twitter's a, a, a never-ending conversation, an ongoing conversation. And, um, the, you know, the, the more ideas and the more, you know, voices that are out there that you, you have access to, you can really get a, a, a good, uh, you know, a good cross spectrum of, you know, of, of what opinions are on issues. And, you know, and it's always good to consider all sides before you take a position and write a column. What did you think of the kind of Super Bowl Twitter controversy of Darren Ravel kind of picking on the Playboy bunnies? 
You know what? Honestly, I didn't even, and I'm going to kind of claim ignorance on this. Uh, you know, I, I saw it briefly, but I didn't really, you know, pay that much attention to it. And, you know, I know people, people kind of like to, you know, because Darren Ravel is kind of taking on the persona as the, you know, king of the sports Twitter world. Right. And so, you know, I know people like to kind of, uh, you know, rag on him for that. And, you know, Darren Ravel, I just, he doesn't really bother me or whatever. I mean, I, I'm just neutral on him. He, he does a pretty good job, I think, on the sports business beat and provides some good information. So, you know, whatever. I, I that, that really just never affected me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like we a long time ago we had the, the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. It seems like on Twitter we have Richard Deitch versus, you know, Darren Ravel. Yeah, and, you know, but that's such a geeky sports media thing that, you know, I just don't think most people care about that. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm wrong. But, uh, uh, you know, I try to stay out of that. Um, I just, you know, I, I just try to stay out of that sports media geekiness that, that I see all the time on Twitter. You know, it seems like one of the great things about the Super Bowl ending is we kind of start as a sports community to pay attention to some of the things that have been going on while we've been so focused on the NFL and the NFL playoffs and college football and the bowl games. And one of those things is definitely college basketball. Have you had a chance to watch any college basketball so far this season? And as we get ready to get this stretch run here in February and get ready for March Madness, what are some storylines in the college basketball world that are going to interest you and how they develop? No, I mean, I watch college basketball you know, pretty much uh, to some degree every every night because uh, it's on every night, and I and I enjoy it. Um, you know, and and th- people really thought this was going to be like a, a different kind of season um, with a lot of players coming back. That you were going to have all these like historically great teams, and um, you know, and that really hasn't happened. Uh, it's you know, to me, just kind of a regular college basketball season. Um, but there are going to be some interesting storylines, uh, you know, down the stretch. I mean, obviously Kentucky, you know. They really have not played a lot of uh, high-level games as of yet, and and they've got a great record in the number one. I saw some questions about you know their point guard play, uh, and and how they're going to handle a you know a really physical team. Um, so you know so that's kind of interesting. Uh, the um, you know Syracuse, uh, you know I, I I I've been really impressed by what they've done this year. Um, you know the Big East is a little bit down, but they've really uh, they've really played at a different level. Um, North Carolina's you know been disappointing to to some degree, and I'm interested to see you know if they can play like the team that that people expect them to be. And I also think there's a chance that at the end this year's not a whole lot different than last year, and we end up in the Final Four. And you know you look up, and there's two pretty good teams, and 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 you know maybe two mid majors, and and um, you know, and it's not exactly the way it didn't. It doesn't play out the way people think. But uh, you know, as always, there, there's a lot of interesting teams and a lot of interesting storylines, and and um, you know, and that's what makes Mark Madness so uh, so cool. You know, the Big Twelve is kind of an interesting conference this year because it's well, Kansas is number seven, but ahead of them, even in the latest AP poll, is Missouri and Baylor, who are at four and six, and Missouri sweated out Oklahoma but survived last night. Uh, Missouri and Baylor, are they as good as their rankings? Um, well, yeah, Baylor is, I mean, talent-wise, Baylor's, you know, got one of the best rosters in the country. There's some toughness questions and some things about Baylor that, um, you know, scare you a little bit, uh, in, in the tournament. But in terms of, you know, talent and length and, 
Uh, they've got shooters. Uh, they've got a you know an elite big man in Perry Jones. I mean, they're a great, great team. Um, and 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 they're a team I wouldn't want to play in the tournament because I think you know talent talent. I'd rather have talent than anything else. And they've got uh, you know as much of that as anybody. You know, Missouri um, plays really well together. Um, they they enjoy. It's a team that really enjoys playing with each other. I think ultimately there's a size question that they're going to have to. Answer if they get the wrong matchup in, in the NCAA tournament, you know, because they're just they're just very light in the front court, very guard heavy team, and a team that really relies on shooting the three, and, and they've got really good shooters, uh, and so they're all, so they're always hard to put away. But you know, the team like Missouri, you always wonder about that bad night, uh, you know, in a big arena in the tournament that they could, uh, you know, they could really uh, uh, be their undoing. So um, I don't think they're as good as their ranking necessarily, but they've had an unbelievable season and. You can't fault what they've done. And obviously on uh, February 11th, those two teams will play uh, Missouri and Baylor, so looking forward to, to that matchup. You mentioned that the mid-majors have crashed the party the last couple seasons, obviously Butler being in the last two national championship games. We talked a little bit last week about how Murray State is in the top 10 for the first time ever. They're 23-0. and zero. Also San Diego State, who I think a lot of people thought that they would be down a little bit, are... Uh, back in the top 15 at number 13, and Harvard is at 25. Uh, St. Mary's is also proving to be the big team out west over Gonzaga this year. Uh, what what Are these the teams that you think could be in the conversation as making a run in the tournament, or is there another mid-major team that you're looking at that could really make some noise in March? Well, I, you know, I, I think everyone's kind of on the St. Mary's bandwagon, the UNLV bandwagon. Everybody loves Creighton. Creighton right. uh, I think those are all pretty. I think those are all, you know, they're all very good teams. Um, the thing about it is, you know, a lot of times it's not the team you see coming. And, you know, nobody nobody thought Baylor was was a threat last year to do anything in the tournament. And then there they were in the finals. VCU was a controversial selection uh, just to get in the tournament, and they right. end up going to the Final Four. So a lot of it just depends on draw and who's hot and who's shooting the ball well. Um, you know, they're all good teams. I mean, they're all, all those teams are, you know, are, are very capable under the right circumstances of, of making a run, um, you know, as is as is a Memphis, um, at St. Louis, uh, all those teams. If, if things fall right, they're all capable of, of winning a couple games, and then you know, it, it, you hit the right matchup, and 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 you, you know, or maybe a high seed the team gets upset early, and you know, so that's just the way the tournament is, and it's hard to say. I, I think before the bracket comes out, it's hard to say who's going to make a run, and, and, and heck, it's hard when the bracket does come out, because sometimes this stuff just, uh, that, that's what the tournament, why the tournament's so great, because it never fails to surprise us. You know, I think, I know that these things are cyclical, but for a power conference like the Pac-12 to not have one team in the top 25, what is going on with Pac-12 basketball? Uh, it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a combination of things. I mean, there have been some coaching changes in that league, uh, you know they they expanded, um, you know this year and brought in Utah and Colorado. Um, it it just so happens that Utah, uh, you know, is kind of at like the low point in, in their entire basketball history. So that's that's tough. Uh, Colorado is actually one of the better teams in the league um, this year. So you know it's 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 uh, a combination of the West Coast uh, recruiting the talent base on the West Coast uh, down a little bit from what it's been just. For whatever reason, you know, California just hasn't put out as many good players. Um, you know, and then and then some of the guys have transferred out. I mean, look at UNLV. Mike Moser, um, you know, was a UCLA guy uh, who is, um, you know, 
one of the leading players in the Mountain West Conference. And so they've had guys transfer out. Gary Franklin uh, was a Cal. He's now at Baylor. Um, so when you have that combination, it's just it's it's just not very it's not any better than than just a, a standard mid major league right now. And it doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. It's just you know, the last couple of years has been, have been bad. All right, last thing, we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, at the Sportscasters, we have a book club. Every month we read a different book with our listeners, and this month we've been reading The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky, and the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. And I don't know if you read the book or looked at the book or not, but it's really not important because it's based on such a historic play in the spectrum, Christian Leitner making that play. What do you remember about this game and those 2.1 seconds that changed basketball? In you know what? Uh, yeah, you know what? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I that is so long ago, and and I, you know, I was so young then. I yeah, barely I was remember. Yeah, I, I barely remember watching it. I mean, I do, but if you were to say, "Hey, where were you, and and what were you doing when you were watching that game?" Um, I I honestly could not tell you. Uh, but I I, I do remember that I, I watched it, and I, I was certainly too young at the time to you know think uh, and understand that you know. What, what what that meant or, or what that game would mean. I, I had no concept of it at the time. Well, you know, as a college basketball fan, I think you'd really like this book. It was really interesting. I, I finished it, and I read a lot. You know, it's particularly interesting to me because Leitner is from where I'm from, you know, western New York. So I was excited to learn about about his role and, and, and what he was as a college basketball player. But it's definitely a book that we, we'd recommend you check out, knowing that you're a big college basketball fan. It's Dan Wilkin from The Daily, which you can find on the Android now, and the iPad. You can find him on Twitter. He's at Dan Wilkin. Anything else that we should know about Dan Wilkin, the where's, the when's, the what's? No, I mean, just, you know, you can follow me on Twitter. If you got an iPad or an Android, go download The Daily. It's right in the App Store. We're usually at the top of the newsstand there, so um, give us a try. All right, thanks a lot, buddy. We really appreciate the time. Thank you. Yep, we'll talk to you soon. All right, we got to thank our guests today, John Wertheim, Puck Daddy Greg Wyshynski, and Dan Wilkin from The Daily, who you just heard. Uh, one more piece of business for today. Well, of course, we have to do pick four, but I wanted to make an announcement. And Don, you're going to be shocked. I don't think I know the announcement. You do not so I'm know. Ex- I'm excited. But next week, which is February 14th. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Marks the return to the podcast of, would you like to guess? The return to the podcast of the Ed. <laughs> it's a horrible guess. Now. Try again. <laughs> John Butchergrass. Dave Damashek. Jeff Passan. Really? From Yahoo Sports. Okay. Author of Death to the BCS. We have put aside the differences between us in the past, <laughs> and Jeff has agreed to be on the show next week to talk about baseball a little bit. Does he remember who we are? He 100% remembered us. <laughs> Does he listen? <laughs> I do not think he listens, although maybe we can encourage him to listen to the show next week. Look, he was an all right guest. I got no problem with Jeff. It'll, it'll be interesting to hear. Well, what I told him in the email was, you know, it sucks to be estranged. From the guy who was Started willing to it. be on this show before anyone else had been on. Right. You know, every time we book a guest, 
the pitch is this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy has been on. We've also been on, right. When, when Jeff was on the show, there was no this guy or this guy. Right. It was, hey, will you come on our show? So yeah, it it was a very weird relationship, and like you I know, said, we're we're pretty candid about our guests and how we right. get them. Right, and, and the, the honest to goodness fallout happened because he was scheduled to come on the show and we missed it, and oh. it was partly our fault, um, and partly his fault, fault more ours. But schedules got screwed up a little bit. Communication was bad. That's we missed right, it, that's right. and he didn't want to hear anything really from us about why. <laughs> He was he was mad and he had a right to be mad. Sure, you know to some degree, but I sent him an email, and we have agreed to. He agreed to accept our apology, and uh, he's going to be on next week. Good, he was a good guest. Now on the twenty first, Gene Wojciechowski is going to be on to talk about the book club book of the month, and also that day Pablo Astori is going to make his second yeah. appearance on the show. To talk about college basketball and also to talk about Jeremy Lin, who has been kind of a big story in the sports world this week as he's kind of emerged as one of the better New York Knicks. And he's a Harvard guy like Torre and Torre covered Lin at Harvard. So we'll do that um, in a couple of weeks. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. We're on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us like our lawyer did, the sportscasters at (laughs) gmail.com. Our, we have two blogs, sportscasters.blogspot.com, which we haven't used much recently. But we have been really active on Tumblr, which is sportscasters.tumblr.com. And our website is www.sports-casters.com. The last piece of business in Studio A is pick four. Last week, I went one and one plus one, uh, meaning I was one and one in the um, two that we counted and plus one in the bonus. Uh, Don was 0 and 2 plus zero. Essentially, 0 and 4. Uh, I, I took a gimme basketball game and I lost on it, huh? Uh, No. That must be thinking of your picks from this week. Oh, okay. That might have been. Remember, last week was just all Super Bowl. Okay, so I'm thinking two weeks ago. Two right? weeks ago, you won your gimme basketball That's game. That's right. Last week, you had the Patriots over the Giants. Minus three didn't Tom happen. Brady. You had 0 and 5. That didn't happen. You had Brady as the MVP. That didn't happen. And you had Welker have more receptions than any two Giants. And basically, the only guy who ruined that for you. Was Hakeem next time? Ten catches. So that blew that out of the water. Uh, I went one and one plus one. I had the Giants plus three over the Patriots, and I had Manning as the MVP, which was my plus. Uh, My loss was having over fifty-five. It was under, and I thought that each team would score one long scoring play. They didn't. What do you think about Manning as the MVP? I was fine with it. I thought he was the right choice. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like. Justin Tuck maybe could have won it. Right. Because, like I said, there was really no huge, huge plays. Like, if Hakeem Nix had a big, important play in one of those 10 catches, and I think you can make the argument that he yeah, did, the thing Eli is, was just like so efficient. Barely a, with those 10, he barely had over 100 yards. I think yeah. that, that was the thing that maybe hold him back. It was surprising, I think, to some degree, not so much from the Patriots' perspective, because the Patriots are that horizontal, eight yards at a time type passing offense. But I'm surprised that. Like you said, the Giants really didn't break any loose either. Right. I would have maybe, like I said, I would have considered Tuck because he had the sack on the intentional grounding play that was worth the safety. Right. Then he had another sack later, I think, on the drive, drive final maybe? drive. They had to call their timeout because third, of that sack. Third down sack, yeah. And uh, I thought he was a real beast on the field. I mean, really, I think there's only three candidates. You know, yeah. it's Manning, Tuck, or Nix. 
How big a mistake do you think it was of Coughlin only to rush three on the last play? Um, I mean that that play was. It's kind of like not guarding the inbound pass in the Duke Kentucky <laughs> play, right? The it was Leitner a strange play. call. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think don't get beat up. Like I said, Bradshaw and maybe that that play at the end there because they won the game anyway. But if they come down with that ball, Brady had more time on that play than he did just about all game. Right, and if he has a good foot, Gronkowski might get that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because he just didn't he have the strength to push off. Right. He was late. You know, if he's 100%, he might get that. But, you know, he's not He's not 100%. So right. maybe that played into, played it. into yeah. it. I don't know. But, All yeah. Right, i got to redeem myself this week. All right. Get us going. All right. The game of the week this week is a Thursday night basketball game at 8 p.m. on TNT. That is the Lakers at Boston. Uh, the Celtics. Give me Boston at home. They're both right around the same record this year. Both, again, look good. They're going to be contenders again, so I'll just take the home team. This is the game of the week. I'm not sure why. <laughs> look it. It was a tough week. There was not a lot out there. Number four versus number six in college basketball, maybe. It was like a 2-7 tonight, too. 2-7 tonight, but we don't do Tuesdays, game. right? Uh, look it. I'm going to pick the Celtics, too. The Lakers have been a horrible road team so far this season. Uh, Kobe Bryant just became... What, the all-time leading scorer for the Lakers? Yeah, number five Shaq. of all time. Right. But that's not going to help him no. <laughs> in Boston. So I'm just going to take the Celtics, again, leaning towards the home team and the fact that the Lakers have been bad on the road so far this season. My host choice this week, I'm going to go with a bit of a homer pick here. I'm going to give me Syracuse tomorrow night at 7 over Georgetown. It's number two Syracuse at home against number 11 Georgetown. All right, my host choice is college basketball game two. We talked about this game with Dan Wolken. I'm going to take number four Missouri over number six Baylor Saturday the 11th at 130 on ESPN three. Missouri kind of had their scare last night against Oklahoma just barely sneaking out of that game with a three-point win. I think that they're going to be ready to play Baylor. They're going to be pumped up for the game and I don't think that um, I think Baylor's got a lot of talent like we said in the Wolken interview. They're going to be a real tough out in the NCAA tournament just based on their talent alone. But I'm going to take Missouri just based on the fact that they had their scare and they're going to be ready to play this game. And uh, I like them a little bit better than Baylor. My worldwide leader pick, I'm going to go with a hockey game because I always lose the hockey game, so why not? Uh, that's this Sunday, the NBC game at 1230. It's Washington at the Rangers. Big surprise, the Rangers will be on the NBC game. Uh, give me New York at home. I'm going an all-home team pick four this week i'm gonna pick number five north carolina over number 20 virginia that's saturday at one o'clock on espn look at north carolina they're kind of been a resurgence they were had a down year last year they're loaded with talent virginia is not a team that you usually see in the top 25 for basketball they're kind of a program on the rise they're just not ready to go to north carolina and win yet so i'm gonna feel pretty confident about north carolina over number 20 virginia I don't think it's a secret that I'm not a big basketball guy, but I'm even less of one during the football and hockey season. So now I'll start to get back into it. That said, I definitely am not a big watcher of non-ranked college basketball teams. So this is a shot in the dark. Michigan's number ranked 25th. I'm going to take Nebraska at home, unranked Nebraska, over Michigan tomorrow night at 830. All right, my bold prediction. Uh, tomorrow the Sabres are going to be on the NBC Sports Network. Uh, that game is at 7.30. They play the Bruins. The Bruins are c- 
could kind of single-handedly be known as a team that ruined the 2012 Sabres. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, the Lucic hit on Miller at that point. The team was, I think, number two or three in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. They've never been the same since. I, I think that the Sabres have something to prove against the Bruins kind of every time they're out there now. Sure. And I think that the Bruins are kind of in a position where they don't respect the Sabres at all anymore. Nope. And I think that they're going to come into that game just thinking that Sabres are shit. And they're nothing, and they don't earn the respect. So I'm going to lay a goal and a half and pick the Sabres over the Bruins. I saw an odd stat yesterday that said that as good as the Bruins are, somehow Carolina is 4-0 against them this year. So sometimes the team just has your number, I guess. Uh, do you think anyone fights Lucic again? No, I think that that's kind of a dead that's issue. Yeah. yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, look at Anyone at any point could fight Lucic in a game. Right. He could get. I just don't think it'll be like one of those line up and drop the gloves because I got to right, make right. a point. You know, one day late, one dollar short. Right. All right. That's it for the show. Again, we have Jeff Passing next week. Don't forget about the book club book of the month: Duke versus Kentucky and the two point one seconds that changed basketball. Don, do you want to do the honors? Sure. Cue the hip. All right.